base is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello and welcome back to Federation Radio with me, your host Floyd, once again. Today, we're going over Season 2, Episode 1, Amok Time. Or Amok Time, I don't know how exactly you're supposed to say that, but it's actually a very iconic episode. For a lot of reasons. To start with, there's a new crew member on board the ship. A Mr. Chekhov, who is, from this point forward, in most episodes, going to be the navigator. Not to be confused with Sulu, who is the pilot, who has been doing most of the navigating and piloting up till this point. Chekhov is now going to kind of be the navigator going forward for the rest of the show, while Sulu will hold his position as head pilot. Again, for all the episodes they're in, there are still going to be a lot of episodes where those actors... I don't actually know why they're on and off. I don't know if that's just because the show didn't have enough money to have them on board at all times, or whether those actors were actually off doing other acting roles on the side. I, I'm i not sure exactly what the reason was, but they're going to be back and forth. Now, Mr. Chekhov is kind of a fun guy. He's a young character, a younger actor than some of the others. He was sort of, from what I understand, he was newer to acting than I think a lot of them were. And Chekhov was Russian, which... I mean, these days, everyone knows it's not the Russians' fault for what some of their government's doing at times, but, like, remember, this show was being filmed in the 1960s, in the late 1960s. The Cold War was at its height. This was the 60s. This was the ultimate, like, Cold War was heading off. Korean War was already happening. The Vietnam War was ramping up at this point, like... This was absolute peak proxy wartime between the great nations. And so Star Trek at this point, to put a Russian, or at the time as everyone would have called them, a Soviet, on here, was pretty ballsy, to be honest. Like, this is an era where they're already pushing a lot of boundaries for TV. They've got, you know, black women on screen. Like, not just black people, but black women, which at the time in the 60s in America was a big deal on its own. They've got... Women all over the place in the Starfleet command in Starfleet uniforms with actual authority. That in itself was kind of a big deal. And now on top of that, they're going to throw a Russian on top of all this. Which, you know, I should look up at some point. I am actually interested if there was any real kickback to Chekhov being there and whether the studio was upset. I'll, I'll look into that for future episodes to talk about. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was interesting to bring up because it is fascinating to me that in the middle of this cold war they just went and got i mean admittedly they didn't grab a soviet it's not like he was directly from the soviet union he wasn't like some traitor he was just a russian man that i believe lived in america although i say that very cautiously because i'm not sure because i know the actor for scotty was a canadian so i'm not a hundred percent that he is american but anyway he's a russian dude he's joined he doesn't really matter at this point, because in this episode he doesn't do a lot. This was just his first appearance. But you'll see throughout this season and the next one, like he's going to continue to be a, fi- a fixture on the show. This episode is actually a Spock-centric episode. And not just Spock, but a Vulcan-centric episode. We are not just learning about Vulcans. We're going to the planet Vulcan. We're actually going to be seeing their homeworld on screen for the very first time in Star Trek, which is pretty cool. Their homeworld, to me, was always very reminiscent of, like, Mars. It's got this... Apparently, they have a thinner atmosphere, so it's harder to breathe, but on top of that, it's hot. 
it's very hot planet. Like from a human perspective, we would call it arid slash desert for the most part. Like there aren't really green sections of Vulcan. It is just a hot, dry world, which kind of makes sense. It's a part of why Vulcans are stronger. They're from a thinner atmosphere. So they have better lung capacity. You know, and it's also dangerous. We know that on Vulcan there are a lot of wildlife. They don't really come up in this episode, but later on we'll learn, like, Vulcan does have a fair bit of wildlife. There are still predators. A lot of the Vulcan senses this ability to hear from a distance in their ears. It's not just so that they look stupid. You know, this isn't to try and make them space elves. This, it also serves a purpose evolutionary-wise from their species because their world is dangerous. They need those senses to survive. And it serves them very, very well out in space with other species like humans who don't have these senses or extra strengths or lung capacities. So, this is an episode, though, that really focuses around Ponfar, which is a term... It takes Spock a while in this episode to actually admit that that's what's happening to him. But that's what's happening. And throughout the, se- the series going forward, you- you'll hear about Ponfar now and again, although it is interesting... How it continues, even like a hundred years from now in the story, this is still a very humiliating and personal time for Vulcans where they don't like to talk about it with outsiders. To the point that, like, when we get to Voyager, other people still don't know about Ponfar. A lot of the people that are non-Vulcans on board don't know what's happening. And I should probably explain what it is for you guys listening if you don't know. Ponfar is this idea that the Vulcans, because up until this point, what we've seen of Spock and what we know of the Vulcans is they're not emotionless. They do feel emotions. They just suppress them because they see that as dangerous. But Ponfar is their mating season, basically. No, not quite. Well, it is basically the mating season, but it's like during the mating season, their body undergoes biological changes. They look the same. But they are basically incapable of suppressing their emotions at this point. They can't meditate. They cannot focus their minds. They get very angry. They get hyper-emotional, which is why it's humiliating to them. Because everything in their culture is about suppressing who you are and your emotions. So when you're unable to do that, they don't want to share that. It's embarrassing. It's something that they want to go home for. They want to be with their people and not be seen by others because they feel that they'll be looked down on by other species. Which... In itself, that paranoia and anxiety about that and the way they feel about it is a very non-Vulcan way to react, which is what makes the Ponfar so interesting because it really just flips everything you know about Vulcans upside down. And the thing is, this is not just like being horny. Like, yes, as a human, there are different levels of horny. Sometimes you are horny enough that you can't focus. That is not the same level that a Vulcan gets to, though. A Vulcan can physically die if they don't breed during this period, or at least go home and get to go through this with their people, they will die. Like, early on in the episode, we get a bit of an outburst from from Spock. The Dr. McCoy has gone to the captain and says that there's a problem with Spock. He's not eating, he won't talk to me, I don't know what's going on, but I'm telling you medically something is wrong. I need you to speak with him. And they're in the hallway outside Spock's room. Well, a little bit up from Spock's room. And at this point, Nurse Chapel, who I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before, has a thing for Spock. She really wants Spock. But Spock, of course, is a Vulcan and will never show her the response that she wants. She goes towards Spock's room and she's got a pot of plomic soup, which is... We never really get exactly what it is, but it's meant to be apparently a very bland soup. 
something that you would absolutely expect a Vulcan to have. It, it looks like something that would be called like Supplement 23 in a replicator or something. It it never looks appetizing. I get the feeling it's just the plainest soup with all the nutrition you need but no flavor. Pretty much exactly what you would expect someone like a Vulcan to eat. So she's bringing it to him. Dr. McCoy quickly stops and says, Oh, plomic soup. Made it yourself, no doubt. Sort of making a little joke because it's kind of a known thing on board that she likes Spock. She's going out of her way. She's making special meals for him. Everyone's aware of this. It's kind of just an ongoing joke. People let it go. So she goes in the room. And what really gets the episode going then is we hear Spock yelling. Spock doesn't yell. He doesn't lose his temper like this. He yells. He throws that suit past her and it hits the wall in the hallway, which is when even Kirk, like, his eyes go wide. He's like, looks at McCoy like, you're not wrong. Something's very wrong with Spock. He would not... Because the hall, it's not just McCoy and Captain Kirk. There's other crew members. There's that lady that went in and there's a couple other... And they all stop. They all turn around. They're all looking like... Is that Spock? Like, Spock yelling is enough to make everyone stop in their tracks. Like, did, did the Vulcan really just lose his temper? What the hell's going on? You know, which is, it's great. I, and I really like all the actors do a good job. And McCoy, McCoy, um, Leonard Nimoy, Nimoy and McCoy, I've never noticed how Nimoy and McCoy sound so similar, but uh, Leonard Nimoy, the actor for Spock, does a really good job of it must be so difficult to do, but he manages to stay, I would say, in character as Spock. But at the same time, he shows us a very emotional Spock, which is against Spock's character, which as an actor is a very hard role and sort of line to tread. And I feel like he does it just perfectly throughout this whole episode. He really sells a Vulcan in distress, which is a role that I, I don't I don't envy them for having to try and do. But like... Now, I'm not going to break down the whole episode again. This one we're going to talk more vaguely about. But, like, that's the starting point. And you can already tell from what I've talked about with Spock in the past. Like, this is a pretty big deal. Something is very wrong. Things are not how they should be. Now, Kirk... Well, actually, sorry. Kirk goes to talk to him. But Spock very clearly doesn't want to talk. And he very aggressively says, I seek a leave of absence. I wish to go to Vulcan. Will you grant me my leave or not? And he just keeps on refusing outright to answer any of Kirk's questions and just demands leave. And even Kirk is like, in all the years you've worked under me, you have never once requested leave. And Spock just very blatantly says to him, will you approve my leave or will you not? And Kirk, he's trying to get an answer. Like He even says to him, like, I'm not just your commander, I'm also your friend. Like You can talk to me. What is going on? And Spock just like slams the door in his face. He just closes it because he needs to go to Vulcan and he doesn't want to talk, which, you know, in the end, Kirk ends up saying, okay, we'll take you to Vulcan, which, you know, is nice. Fair enough. Spock's a good officer. He does his job. He very rarely asks for leave. Vulcan's on the way to the next mission anyway. So they do it. Now, of course, this sort of calms Spock a little bit at first, but then Kirk gets a message from Starfleet Command that the time for the mission they're on has been upped. So they're going to need to speed up their warp to get there faster, and they're not going to have any time for delays. Which means they're no longer going to Vulcan. Now when Spock hears this, like Kirk goes to tell him, and he's because Kirk goes in and says, I'm sorry, but unless you can give me a reason why you need to go to Vulcan and actually explain it to me, I'm going to have to stop us from going there and take us to the mission because I've been given orders that it's a priority. 
He says, sorry, but that's what it's like sometimes on a ship, unless you can give me a reason. He lets him go. You know, Spock lets him leave the room, doesn't give him a reason. And then later on, we sort of see Kirk in his quarters. And he's going back and forth, and you can tell he's thinking on this. And he sort of decided, you know what... And this is one moment where I actually really do appreciate Kirk's character here. Like, he truly does care for his crew. Because this is a point where he is, like, walking around his room. And you can tell it's really eating at him. He doesn't know what's going on with his friend. His friend won't answer his questions. But he also knows Spock's not the sort of person to throw his soup in the hallway and get angry like that. Like, he wouldn't be requesting leave to go to Vulcan unless it was really important. He would not break everything that's important to him like that unless it's important. So... He gets on the comm to the bridge, and Mr. Chekhov answers, and he says, Mr. Chekhov, change our direction. I want you to take us to Vulcan. <laughs> and then we get a great, like, Chekhov's confused, and he sort of looks at the mic, looks over at Sulu, and then he looks back at the comm, and he says, But Captain, we are already on our way to Vulcan. He says, Mr. Spock came on board before and gave us your orders. So... Not only is Spock showing emotion, he's also going against Kirk orders here. And he's basically told, gone against Kirk. Kirk has said, we're not going to Vulcan, we're going straight to the mission. Spock has then walked onto the bridge straight after Kirk's left and told them, with authority, as if it's coming from the captain, turn the ship towards Vulcan. Captain's orders. So, of course, no one's questioned. It's Spock. Spock never lies. Spock always tells the truth. Why would he lie? I guess the captain's orders, so they went there. So when Kirk calls, and then Chekhov just sort of sounds confused, and he's like, all right, Mr. Chekhov, very well, continue on for now. And he, like, hangs that up, and then he goes to get Dr. McCoy. And he tells McCoy, you are going to give him a full check over, and then Kirk goes to the bridge and tells Spock, you are dismissed, you are to go to Bay right now. Because, you know... Kirk is smart enough to know this is out of character. Something is wrong. If you're not going to talk to me, then I'm going to send you to the medical bay because you are dismissed until that is done. Fair enough. He's not in his right mind. Something is obviously wrong. If he doesn't want to talk about it, he needs to at least be cleared by a doctor before he can continue to work. So he goes off. And then we get an even more interesting moment where McCoy does his... At first, Spock tries to get away, but in the end, Spock ends up just admitting to his medical test, he allows McCoy to go over him, and then we get McCoy coming into Kirk's office, and saying like, and Kirk's like, so what's going on, what's with Spock, (laughs) and McCoy just looks at him and goes, you have to take us to Vulcan, there's no time to do our mission, and Kirk's like, what do you mean, we have a priority mission, we can't go to Vulcan, what is going on with him, and McCoy says, I'm sorry, I don't actually know what's happening with him, but physically I can tell you he is dying. Whatever it is, is killing him. And he describes how all of his systems, his organs, his blood pressure, everything is wrong. All of it is too high. He's like, at this rate, he will be dead in eight days if whatever it is doesn't pass. And if he says he needs to go to Vulcan, then he needs to go as a priority. And as much as this is, at this point, it's frustrating Kirk a lot because he wants to help his friend and he doesn't want to break his orders unless he has a good reason but at this point he's kind of been given one so he calls Spock in and Spock very begrudgingly at this point admits yes the doctor is right I am going to die if I don't go to Vulcan and then he breaks down and he talks about Ponfar that's what's happening it's the Ponfar which is he's 
mating season is upon him, and during that time, as he explains, they lose control of their emotions, they become much more animalistic, and this is how they breed. And, you know, because during this time they're more emotional, so this is the time when they go back to their planet, and as he says, he has a wife back there. Now, we do learn T'Pring is not actually his wife. Apparently the way it works is that the parents will join them, but it's more than, it's not just quite an arranged marriage. They get the two children and they do a little ritual sort of using their powers of the mind to link them in a certain way so that at the right time when they enter Ponfar they will be drawn to each other on an almost subconscious level. Which makes a lot of sense when you think about a culture like that that doesn't really have a sex drive because sex drive is very much biology and emotion a lot of the time. So if you're suppressing that, your species is going to die out pretty quick if you don't have a way to continue the bloodlines. Ponfar is the answer that you've been looking for. This is that every... Yes, they are, as a culture, they're not sexual, they're not emotional, but every seven years, they are, for a short period of time. And through this, like, arranged marriage setup they have, it allows them to, during that time, go home, basically have sex. This is how they breed. This is when their kids are born. And as far as I'm aware, they won't have sex again for another seven years. So, like, it's not like when you're married, it's like a regular human marriage with Vulcans is different. But the downside is that during this period, they're in danger. Like, like, like McCoy said, eight days he'll die if he doesn't do this. And sometimes they will die even if they do do this because it's so strenuous on the body and mind for them to go through this. It's why they like to go home because when they're home, Vulcans can help each other. They have a lot of powers of the mind with each other. They can bend, uh, mind meld their minds together. They can help each other, like suppress emotions for them. So, like, Spock can go home and his family, his father and his mother, and well, not his mother because she's human, but we'll, we'll deal with that another day. His father and other Vulcans can help him suppress it so that he doesn't die. They can actually assist him with this, something that the rest of the crew can't do for him. Now, at this point, Kirk agrees and says, okay, let's take you home then. I'm not going to have you die. He says, damn, be the consequences if Starfleet's upset. All this is is a bunch of parades and events and peace conferences anyway. He's like, at the end of the day, if they want to fire me for it, so be it. Spock has risked his life for me more than once. I'm going to take the Enterprise to Vulcan. And you know what? I love that. I think that's awesome. He's a good friend and a good captain. He looks after his people. But um, So they go there, and then we get a really nice moment. It's a moment that I always remember, and I think this is the episode where at the start of Season 2, like they were already kind of all friends. But this is the official, like, before it was Kirk and McCoy were, like, best buddies, and they both had a lot of respect for Spock, although they both sparred with Spock a lot verbally. Like, there was a lot of Vulcan versus human stuff going on, even though they were friends. This, to me, is the episode where the original trio really became the trio. Because Spock turns to them in the elevator. Well, the turbo lift, I think they call them, and they're on their way to the bridge to give the command to keep going to Vulcan. He turns to them and says, Captain, I hope you what you see will not disturb you too much, but during the Ponfar, it is my right to bring my best friends to be there for me during this ritual. And I wondered if you might come. Which, you know, at that point, you like Kirk sells it pretty well. His face is pretty honoured by that. That's the first time his non-emotional friend has ever outright said, you are my friend. Anyway, he just says, 
Well, you've put up with my insanity more than once. I think I can put it, I think I can deal with yours this time. I'd be honored to come with you. And then Spock turns, and probably the one that surprises most people the most, he turns to McCoy and says, I would also request that you, McCoy, join me. And McCoy, for once, doesn't make a joke or make any kind of remark. He just says, I would be honored. And the two of them go down. Which is cool. Like, to, to me, that is the moment they went from, like, yes, they are sort of friends to now they're the trio. Now they're the three best friends that on every mission are going to look out for each other forever. All through the movies, they are now the trio. They are going to be famous. All the future captains are going to talk about them. This is the beginning of that. And I think that's awesome. And I I remembered this episode, but I didn't remember that this was literally the first episode of season two. So like they're coming into this season pretty damn well. So they go down to the planet. And the planet's cool. Like like I said earlier, it reminds me of Mars. Everything is red and it's stony. Lots And like we go to this area. It almost looks like a Stonehenge type area. It's like a red Stonehenge in the middle of what looks like a desert. And Spock says, this is my family's land. We have been here for millennia. Which is cool. Shows you, you know, Vulcans are very long-lived. I don't know if that's actually come up before in these podcasts, but Vulcans can live... I mean... We know they can live a little over 200 years at least, which is pretty cool. So, you know, like the Vulcans are a, a little over double the lifespan of a human. So a millennia, like millennia seems like a long time, but it's the equivalent of a human saying centuries because of their lifespan. So it's not that unrealistic. There are a lot of human families that, you know, on Earth today that have owned family farms for five, six generations that's just kind of like this. They are a Vulcan family to be here for a long time. Now, we do get at this point, there's another character that shows up who I actually do want to talk about a little bit because she's kind of interesting and there's a little bit of backstory about her to do with the prequel series later. Well, at least there was supposed to be. So, during this ritual, so they go down and at first, Kirk and McCoy are fascinated by everything. Like, neither of them have ever actually been to Vulcan, so they're looking around at the architecture, they're feeling the heat. Like, McCoy makes a comment about, I've never understood the saying, hot as Vulcan before, but I understand it now. And then Kirk makes the comment about, you know, they have the thinner atmosphere here, it's a very hot planet. You know, this is they're just sort of establishing how the planet is. But at that point, we hear a ceremony starts. So we know that the person he is bound with and is supposed to marry is a, a woman called Tapring. Now, at this point, we sort of hear, it's almost like this ritualistic music starts, and the Vulcans come in carrying this woman, an older woman. She's on, like, a throne on, like, I don't actually know what you call it, but it's, like, the four guys carrying the throne on, like, a bit of wood or something, and she's on the throne. They're, like, carrying her in like it was a um, carriage or something. There is a word for it, but I can't think of it right now, but she's on that. And Kirk and McCoy sort of turn to each other and there's this moment of like, oh, that's T'Pau. Apparently, because like Kirk says to McCoy, T'Pau is the only person in the entire Federation to ever turn down a position on the Federation Council. Which, while at this point... We haven't really heard much about the Federation and how its structure actually works as of yet in Star Trek. It's a big deal because, like, we learn later the Federation Council is, like, the highest position of the Federation because there's the Federation President, who is, like, elected by the Council internally to be the temporary leader. But the Council, every species has representatives, but the Council is, like, 
the most important species in the Federation with the most ships and the most science and the most people get appointed to this council. They get each species gets to put one person there. To power turned it down, and the Vulcans we know we learn later are one of the founding species of the Federation, which is a big deal. That means this woman is apparently the leader of Vulcan and turned this down. So she's someone who is a very proud Vulcan. She wants to stick with her traditions and her planet, and she's not too interested in dealing with the Federation stuff. So she just wants to stick with Vulcans. So the fact that she is showing up personally to oversee this ritual, like even Kirk and McCoy sort of say, like, I didn't realize that Spock's family was this high up in the Vulcan command. Well, not Vulcan command, they don't say that, that's from later, but the Vulcan hierarchy. I forget the exact quote they say, but like, we didn't realize Spock's family was this important. Now, interestingly, Spock's actual family, I don't think they turn up for this. T'Pring's family come, because T'Pring comes not long after this, along with some of her family and guards and stuff. But we don't see Spock's father yet, which sort of interested me because he will... Spoilers, but like Spock's father is going to be a character going forward. Not a constant character, but we're going to have a few episodes with him. And he's going to be across series. We're going to meet him again in Next Generation and in the movies. So Spock's father is not like a one-off character like, like Kirk's brother was. Spock's father is going to show up, but I guess they hadn't come up with exactly what actor would play the father or how they wanted the father to be yet, so he wasn't in this episode. Nor was his mother. Which is very disappointing, because I would have liked to have started to delve into that whole he is half Vulcan, not full Vulcan. I would have liked to have met the mother now, but that's okay. We, we meet her later as well. But now, so, T'Pau is interesting, and the thing I wanted to say about T'Pau before we move forward with this story, in the prequel series, I know I always bring up the prequel series, but don't worry, we'll get there one day, but in this prequel series, there is a Vulcan who is on the crew. And she originally, the original intent for that character was that they wanted to use T'Pau. They wanted this old lady by Kirk's time to have, in her youth, served in the Federation and in Starfleet as one of the first Vulcans to serve with humans. Which would have made this, you know, her as an older woman living on Vulcan much more meaningful in hindsight. Now... For whatever reason, and I don't know what the reason is, for whatever reason, pretty late into development, like from what I understand, the character was called T'Pau all the way up until almost the filming of the first episode of Enterprise, and then they changed it and they made her a different character and gave her a different backstory and didn't quite finish fleshing it out because season five never got made, but we're not going to talk about that just yet. We'll get to that character later, but I just wanted to bring up that like, T'Pau is a pretty big character in the lore. She's a character who is talked a lot about, and I believe we actually hear a little bit about T'Pau in the Enterprise series. I don't think she's directly involved too often, but like she is around because she is younger and is still in the command structure at that point because of how long they live. But anyway, moving forward, so we'll get back to T'Pring. So T'Pring shows up, and T'Pring at this point does something very unusual because earlier, I should say, Kirk and McCoy sort of talk about how interesting this is and they're looking around at everything and Spock sort of makes an offhanded comment that sometimes in our past we would have to kill to earn our mates but these days that's very rare now T'Pring stands up at this point when Spock is approaching her presumably to basically ask her will you go through with the vow we took or the vow our parents made or whatever and she says 
Khalifi. And and Spock and McCoy are just like all the viewers at that point. They're like, what what the fuck does Khalifi mean? Everyone's looking around. And then Spock steps back. And T'Pau sort of holds her hand up and says, are you sure about this? Like, do you wish to go through with this? And we learn from T'Pau at that point, who explains it to Kirk and McCoy, because obviously they're outside the culture. So she turns to them and says, this is what's happening. She says, Khalifi, or Khalifi, or however you're supposed to say it, is the right that apparently all Vulcan... I'm a little unclear exactly whether the Vulcan woman has to do it or whether the man can do it too. It's not fully explained, but like apparently in this case, she is able to invoke Khalifi where she is going to make Spock fight someone to the death for her, and the winner of that fight will get her. And she calls for... And the reason she's doing this, I'll say later on in the episode we learn, one of her guards, or one of the people that's, like, around her house, one of the people that works for her, or is her friend... I'm not I'm not exactly clear on what his position of authority is, compared to hers, but she is... Basically, she wants him, and he wants her. They they basically already are in a relationship, and she doesn't want to leave him to go to Spock, even though their parents made an agreement. Fair enough. It's it's a very common story for, like, arranged marriage types. Quite often, it doesn't happen till they're well and truly into adult life, and adult life happens. Sometimes you meet people before that. So, the thing about Khalifi, like I said, though, is a fight to the death. And she, as the one who called Khalifi, gets to choose the challenger. Now, what's funny at this point is that she... And I don't... No, actually, she does do this for a very logical reason because she's a Vulcan. She picks Kirk. And at this point, Kirk is shocked. Like, even Spock... Because at this point, Spock isn't really Spock anymore. I mean, he is, but he is... As he describes it, my blood is fire. Like, he is not in his right mind. Emotions are overwhelming him. He's, like, standing there holding his hands together, trying his best just to keep himself calm because his body is just completely freaking out right now. And even in that state, his friendship for Kirk is so strong that his conscious brain manages to push through and he sort of tries to say to T'Pau, like, please, my friends do not understand. They are not from our culture. Please do not let her choose them. Let me fight anyone else. I can't control myself and what I will do right now. Do not make him do this. You know, which is cool. I love that in this moment where he's basically delirious, he is unable to control himself, he still recognizes my friend's life is in danger and manages to push through enough to try and save them. Now, Tapao at this point actually interestingly uses this as an opportunity to kind of pick on Spock. Like, she says, you are already half Vulcan. Is your blood really fire? Or are you as human-blooded as they say you are? And he says, you know, I am Vulcan. My blood is fire. I will do what I must do. And she just sort of, we will see what must be done. And she turns to Kirk and says, it is his right to bring you here as it is hers to make you enter this ritual. But as you are an outsider, I will not force it upon you. It is your choice. However, you know, she basically makes clear, Spock will lose, lose out and not be helped if you don't do this. So Kirk, seeing no other real option, has to step forward. And they're given these two, I don't know what exactly you'd call them, they're kind of like, 
is probably a word for the weapon. They look like old gladiator weapons to me. It's like a moon crescent blade at one end of this big, thick, like, staff. It, it is a staff, but it's so thick that it's almost like a pillar. And then at the other end, it's got, like, a round metal ball. So I suppose you're supposed... And it's like a two-hand... It's like a double-ended stave type of weapon. I know there's a word for it, but again, I can't remember it. And, like, basically, they're each thrown one, and at this point, you can tell on Spock's face. he He's gone. Spock is not conscious right now. He is going to fight to the death against Kirk. And Kirk's got it, and Kirk is in a really awkward position because he doesn't want to win. He's got no interest in Tapering. And if he wins, it means he has to kill Spock. But if he loses, he dies. So what, what do you do in this position? Now... They fight for a while, and at first, I think Kirk is just, like, sparring with him, not really sure what's going to happen. And then at one point, uh, Spock sort of pushes him back with the staff and then swings it around, and the, like, moon crescent blade actually cuts open Kirk's shirt and cuts his chest as well, which is kind of when Kirk looks up and he realizes, oh, shit, like, I'm really in trouble here. Like, he is going to kill me. What the hell do I do? Now... Because they're humans and they're not used to Vulcan's thinner atmosphere, he starts to struggle. Like, he's doing proper physical exercise. This would be the equivalent of doing it on top of a cliff. Like, when you get up high enough that the oxygen is thinner, you can't breathe. Kirk's tiring out. He's tired. He, he can't keep fighting. So, McCoy, at this point, actually says to T'Pau, please, call a ma- call a quick truce to the match. Allow me to give Kirk a triox compound to try and, I don't know what Triox is supposed to be, but apparently it allows the body to basically withstand the thinner atmosphere a bit better, allows the air to circulate and the body to function more the way it should. And he says, because he's a human, he needs this. We didn't know he would be under exercise or he would have done it before the fight. And T'Pau obliges. She says, that's fair. I wouldn't want this to be dishonorable. And she allows them a quick break. And McCoy comes over and he whispers something to Kirk, and then he injects him with the Triox compound. And this is brilliant. Because in that moment, what it appears to be is that he just gives him Triox so that they can keep fighting. But what actually happens, and this is a real quick like sleight of hand by McCoy, very quick thinking, he manages to, inside that, he does a Triox compound, but he also adds something to it in a way that it will make Kirk's appear to be dead. Now, Kirk keeps fighting, and Kirk puts up a good fight, puts on a good show, and then at a certain point, his heart stops, and he sort of, mid-fight, he collapses, and he is dead. Like, McCoy leans down, and he full-on puts on a show. He acts all emotional and says, you've killed him, Spock. Are you happy? And Spock sort of turns around and goes towards Tapring. At that point, McCoy says, I will be back, and he has the body of Kirk transported up, where, of course, as soon as they get on the ship, he reawakens him. He injects him with the cure to whatever he did to him, and it reawakens him. He's still fully alive. He's fine. (laughs) Which is awesome. And then McCoy goes back down. And McCoy sort of has to keep playing along as if Kirk's dead, because if it's found out Kirk's alive, that would be an insult to the culture and, you know, break the whole matchup. Now, at this point... Tapring actually explains that what's happening and that she wants to be with another and that she doesn't want to be with Spock. And basically, she uses the logic where she says, the reason I chose your captain was because I would get what I want either way. Either your captain would win and kill you, and then your captain would not want me, so I would be able to have Storn, 
which I believe is the name of the guy that she liked from her from the local area. And she says, if you won, you would divorce me because I had made you kill your captain. He says, either way, I would have been free to be with Ston. And she explains that, you know, over time, your legend has grown, Spock. You are famous amongst our people. You have become something of a legend. And she says, I did not wish to be a consort of a legend, and this was the only logical way I could see to get out of this. And even Spock sort of says, like, he's a bit hurt at this moment, but he says, oh, well, your logic is flawless here, which is great to me. Like, that's, your logic is flawless. Like, even at a moment where he has been, well, he is convinced at this moment that he has killed his best friend, he's still such a Vulcan that even he is like, your logic is flawless, and there is still somewhat of an actual respect in the way he says that, which is... Such a weird... The Vulcans are a fascinating species to me just because they just... They shouldn't work. Everything about the Vulcans shouldn't make sense. And yet, in some way, it does work. And throughout Star Trek, they will actually keep them relatively consistent to a point where they actually are a working culture. And they're just... They're fascinating. But anyway, funny enough, at this point, McCoy sort of says to Spock, like, as strange as it may seem... You are in command now, Mr. Spock. And Spock says, you know, go back up to the ship. I'll follow you in a few minutes. I will send my... I will... Uh, what has he put it? I will put myself forward to the nearest star base for my crimes. And McCoy goes up, and then the whole explanation happens, like I just explained, and, and then he goes up. The thing is, after he goes up, he finds Kirk. Alive and well. And then they explain what they did, McCoy and Kirk. And Spock finds himself... He's not laughing, but there is a moment where he kind of has a lot of respect for McCoy at that moment. You can tell he has this whole, like, I'm glad I brought you both with me. And it's nice. Like, it's the end of the episode. Spock is no longer married. I don't actually know if Spock ever does get married again or have a partner. I don't actually recall whether he ends up having children or a partner or anything. I... I'm not actually sure about that. That's something I guess we'll see as we go forward. I, I don't recall, but... It's a really cool like episode to dive into Vulcan culture. We get to see Vulcan. We get to learn more about Spock. We get the trio becoming the official trio. And yeah, I think that's all pretty cool. It's a very nostalgic episode. Even the music that plays when Kirk and Spock are fighting is so iconic. Anyone who's watched this episode will hear that music immediately anywhere else and remember this episode. It, it's great. It's a really good episode, and I highly rate it. But uh, next week, well, not next week, or tomorrow, we will be going over the episode Who Mourns for the Edonians, which I can't say I remember off the top of my head. We'll see when I start watching it whether I do remember it. So thanks for coming by, and I will see you all next time. Bye for now.